0: It is a prime ingredient that fuels the fires of imagination. Amid countless eons past, it fanned a spark ignited by a primeval author, chiseling arcane petroglyphs across a dim cave wall. This life-giving current once grew papyrus for paper and dried vibrant oils brushed over canvas. Carried across the land since before the dawn of time, It is the breath that gave rise to dinosaurs, and has since walked on the surface of the moon. Manifesting as a placid breeze, it stirs memories of childhood, or as a turbulent vortex, ripping up the pages of history. Powered by this influence, we dream, love, laugh, hate and destroy. In short, live out our lives. A gust of this disturbance carries the potential to scatter fog surrounding the unknown. Drifting through frequencies of time and space, thin air is inhaled for the first time and exhaled at the last. Don't try to catch your breath.
1: falls asleep at the side of the road. Me, apparently. Not just any road, either. Not some well-traveled thoroughfare, but rather a lonely, out-of-the-way dirt path. Somewhere, out in the middle of nowhere. Adding insult to injury, I awoke in the middle of a shallow mud puddle in the rain, cold and underdressed for the occasion. My dress on, inside out corn overcoat, and no shoes. As I thought to regain some semblance of composure, I pulled myself up out of the sticky mire and onto what amounted to nothing more than two ruts running parallel across a vast, knee-high field of corn. It was night, far too dark to see any landmarks that might suggest a way back to civilization, either up ahead or downhill into a dark valley behind me. The rain was light, yet frustratingly effective at washing away any indication of how I got here or how I might use a breadcrumb trail of footprints to get back to where I belong. Finally opting for the road ahead, I started walking in the direction of nothing in particular, figuring that the flatlands of a farmer's field would provide safer passage than a potentially steep incline down into an even darker, night-shrouded valley. Right or wrong, at least I was moving away from ground zero, and, after all, a path is a route leading somewhere, right? That's just about the same moment when I first noticed the light. It glowed a dim crimson, pulsating at regular intervals several hundred yards out, and at an elevation only slightly higher than the surrounding corn stalks. It cast a circular ring of illumination down into the tassels, stalks, and dirt directly underneath. Radiating out from some kind of central aperture, the light also provided more than enough of a shimmering halo to discern an outline of the object it was projecting out from, dead center on a convex silver dome that appeared to be hovering noiselessly above the ground. I'll call it a flying saucer, only because the description fit, a reflective disc about 60 feet in diameter that basically consisted of two identical silver plates pressed together at the lip. I guess hovering saucer would be a more accurate description, but then that's not what they call them in the tabloids. In any event, whatever it was doing, flying or hovering, The effort was both noiseless and motionless, hanging out there in the field like an honest-to-God phantasm. Unbelievable, and yet, seemingly, there it was. I was already terribly unnerved by my circumstance. Why were my clothes in such a state of disarray? How did I end up blacked out and face down in a mud puddle way out here in the countryside? Where is the road I had been driving on And for that matter, where is my car? And now this. I don't even believe in this crap. UFOs? Little green men? Alien abduction? The thought was both chilling and seemingly revealing at the same time. Fantastical, of course. Maybe even downright ridiculous. And yet, there it was. A flying saucer. My God, I thought to myself, I've read about this stuff. Required reading, of course. Certainly not the sort of fringe hogwash I'm fond of studying in my free time. Still, I knew the M.O. Abduction lore. Little gray aliens with big heads and black almond-shaped eyes. Missing time. Blah, blah, blah. I needed an easy A a bird course to rack up a couple of extra credit hours, so I decided to take this bizarre class on the paranormal. We touched on just about every bullshit theory you can think of. Aliens, giant birds, Sasquatch, lake monsters, parallel dimensions. Crazy. Though, at the moment, I'm completely at a loss to explain what has happened. Rather, what is happening to me still? Unless I'm drugged and hallucinating, that's a UFO, right there. Undeniable. As the icy fear and realization welled up inside me like the cold draft from a slaughterhouse, I started to run, stumbling along the overgrown path riddled with uneven tractor tread marks, sharp pebbles, and an occasional mound of rotting, fallen brown cornstalks, leftovers from the harvest of years gone by. Running barefoot across these obstacles was painful, of course, yet paled by comparison to the sense of urgency driving me on to anywhere but here. Fleeing into the darkness, I had no idea whether or not the thing was moving to follow me, that is, until I finally risked a look back. The saucer was still in the same spot in the cornfield, though now it was slowly rotating the deep glowing, fiery red lights around the perimeter, no longer shining down to the ground, but rather pointed out into the low-lying fog, like a spinning lighthouse beacon. And it was rising. At first, nearly imperceptible, noticeable only by way of the long, amorphous shadows rippling across the stalks and tassels. I continued backing away as I watched it rise, oblivious to any potential obstacles behind me. Then, I tripped. As I started to fall backwards, someone or something caught me and kept me from toppling over. I immediately pulled away, wrenching myself free and whirling around to face what I hoped would be a police officer, someone who happened by and spotted me out here running. It was not. At first, all I could make out was a silhouette of a tall, thin man standing in the middle of the trail, outlined by a brilliant set of car headlights behind him.
0: Abigail Parrish has lost track of time. Far across a remote cornfield, laying unconscious in the rain, she awakes to find herself in a frightening situation, face to face with the unknown. Miss Parrish doesn't know it yet, but what she has encountered so far, remembered or for the time being forgotten, is nothing more than a foreshadow of the terror that is yet to come. The entity calls itself Maveth Vale, a dark shadowy figure that has seemingly appeared out of the thin air to catch her fall. In the annals of UFO folklore, the being in question is commonly referred to as a man in black, Origin, unknown, purpose, fear and intimidation, a specter to perpetuate a lie, an ominous force to veil the truth that hides concealed behind a most imposing shade of gray.
1: Who are you? What do you want? I shouted. At first, the figure didn't respond at all, just stood there, motionless, his identity completely obscured by the intense rim light. What are you doing here? I went on. Please, I'm lost. Can you help me? If I could just find my way back to the road, to my car, or perhaps use your phone to, to call an Uber? Please, sir, I just want to get home, or maybe call 911. Tell the police there's a UFO out here. Bring in the National Guard or something. Apparently, there is something in what I said that caused a reaction. The man gestured with his outstretched arm, back in the direction behind me.
2: Back there, you say? A UFO? An unidentified flying object.
1: I heard a strange sound that I decided must be him clicking his tongue on the roof of his mouth.
2: You don't actually believe in that sort of far-fetched mumbo jumbo
1: i suppose i should have been relieved that he was actually initiating a conversation but something about the tone of his voice was extremely unnerving a kind of sing-song vibration that sounded at least to me emotionless and monotone like an ai robot i know what i saw it was undeniable right back down this dirt path, like two silver plates attached to each other at the lip with a ring of glowing red portholes around the perimeter. In a very strange jerking motion, the man threw his head back and let out an otherworldly cackle, a booming laugh that seemed altogether artificial.
2: portholes, no less,"
1: he repeated,
2: and I suppose that there must have been little green men looking out at you through those portholes.
1: Like some kind of deformed cartoon character, the man's neck literally stretched forward away from his shoulders like a jack-in-the-box, his head bobbing up and down just inches from my face. Corpse white pallor, framing what seemed to be painted on lips, masking an unnatural smile. The hideous specter continued.
2: Why don't you tell me more about these portholes? Were they round? Perhaps the shape of a crescent? There's not a cloud in the sky now, Miss Parrish. The precipitation has cleared away to reveal a brilliant moon in the starry sky overhead. Venus at peak brilliance. Are you certain of what you saw now? Are you absolutely certain that you saw portholes?
1: In a wild state of adrenaline-fueled panic, I ducked beneath the shadowy, outstretched features and pushed the man out of my way as I ran blindly toward the headlights of his car and then veered past. On the way by, I noticed that the car was vintage, a jet black sedan with brilliant chrome trim and wide white wall tires. In the split second it took me to stumble into the cornstalks beside the car on the way around, I also noticed that all the windows were completely opaque and offered no clue as to whether there were other occupants concealed inside. Like the man himself, the car was equally unnatural, too clean, far too pristine to have rolled down a muddy pathway through a cornfield in the rain. No matter. All I could think about now was escape, to flee on foot as fast as possible across whatever was in my path. As the inky black cornrows raced by on either side of me, I realized that, at the very least, I had made the right decision by choosing this direction for my escape. A short distance ahead was the road, a dark band of rough asphalt that would intersect with my escape route, and there, a few feet distant from that very intersection, was my car, a welcome, recognizable sight, bathed in the moonlight. I had no idea whether the man and his strange black car were in hot pursuit. I heard no sound coming from behind me, no telltale crunching of tires on gravel or an engine revving. All that mattered now was getting behind the wheel and leaving this nightmare behind. The blacktop was easily traversable, and I crossed the space remaining to the driver's side without delay and quickly slammed the door shut behind me. It took several seconds more to find my keys when I remembered that for some reason my dress was on inside out. Ripping a button completely off the seam in an effort to reach the pocket, I quickly grabbed the keychain and turned the key in the ignition. To my relief, The engine turned over without a hitch, and I wrenched the car into drive and gunned my way off the shoulder in a spray of pebbles. started down the road, switching on my high beams along the way. The post-rain humidity was now manifesting as a thick blanket of fog that hung low in the ditches on either side of the road ahead and drifted in wisps across the blacktop for as far out as I could see. Driving fast under these conditions was treacherous to be sure, but the alternative of puttering cautiously along with Stretch Armstrong and a flying saucer on my heels was not an option. As my heart rate started leveling off a smidge, I decided, at the very least, to fasten my seatbelt for good measure. Racing along through the gloom for several miles, I finally caught sight of the glittering streetlights of a town. Signs of desperately needed civilization, other people to help fend off the unknown that seemed to be fading fast in my rearview mirror. As the tattered threads of rational thought started stringing back together one strand at a time, I reached out toward the dash and turned on the radio. Oddly, my favorite channel featuring jazz music, something with a much needed calming effect, seemed to be off the air. As a blurring static hiss started flooding out from the speakers, I quickly pressed the scan button for any sort of broadcast at all, a voice of reason to bring me back from the edge. As luck would have it, the tuner landed on an AM radio station, WAIR, currently running an all-night call-in talk show hosted by someone named Clayton Lomax. As if I needed to be reminded of my current situation, Clayton's specialty was apparently the paranormal and this evening's fair focused on UFO sightings and their subsequent government cover-up. That's just great, I chided. About to press the scan button again to find something, anything else, I paused when I heard the subject of current discussion.
3: You use UFO and cover-up in the same sentence, and boy oh boy, I tell you what, the lines are lighting up like a Christmas tree. More than usual, honestly. Well, let's go ahead and get this party started. Caller, you're on thin air. Good evening.
4: Uh, yes, hello? Is this thin air radio? Indeed it is, my dear. Where are you calling from? yes uh, hi this is shelby from uh, guthrie oklahoma i mean well guthrie is where i live uh, in town that is with my husband and my three kids Uh, um though that's not where i'm calling from uh, right now clayton uh i'm well somewhere out in the middle of a wheat field Uh, um I, i guess somewhere outside of town though honestly at the moment Everything's dark. Honestly, Clayton, I'm scared. I don't even know why I called you, and not the police, I, I I, guess because I dialed your calling line previously, last number in my call log. I just pressed it, not thinking. Clayton, I'm so scared. I, I, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I... Sh- Shelby, yeah. Hey, Shelby, listen. Are you hurt?
3: Injured in some way? You need to hang up on me and call 911, okay? Shelby, you understand? You're in Oklahoma. I'm in Colorado. I can't help you right now. Get in touch with the authorities, dear, okay? I sympathize with your situation, but there's nothing I can do to get you out of it. Hang up now. Get the police out there to help you. Shelby? You still there? Seriously, my dear. Hang up and get someone out there to help you.
4: Wait uh, uh, a moment, Clayton. I see something. Um, heading this way. Headlights. Uh, oh, thank God. Someone's here, Clayton. Uh, please wait. Don't hang up. Hey, over here. I'm here. Uh, sh- Shelby. Shelby,
5: still there? Shelby. Are you still on the line? Apologies, Mr. Lomax. I'm afraid that Shelby is... How shall I put it? Indisposed at the moment. Unable to respond. My name is Maveth Vale. I have an important message for one of your listeners. Indisposed? Sir... This is quite troubling. From
3: where I'm sitting, it sounds as though you've somehow silenced my caller in some capacity. I'm already in the process of tracing this call. I suggest that you provide me with some assurance that Shelby is alive, well,
5: and completely unharmed. Ah, but Clayton, I could no sooner harm Shelby than reach through the receiver and come after you. You see, I'm not anywhere near Guthrie, Oklahoma. Now then, might I be permitted to impart my message? Ah, sure, fine, be my guest. Thank you, now then. This message is for Abigail Parrish, a young woman currently speeding down a lonely stretch of state route, driven along by the notion that she has just encountered something she seems convinced to have been a flying saucer. Miss Parrish, I've already tried to dispel your fears. A crescent moon, Remember? The planet Venus, perhaps? Surely, one of these more believable explanations are far more feasible than a UFO. Aliens from outer space? Come off it, my dear.
1: I sat there then, frozen with fear, a white knuckle grip on the wheel, dumbfounded by what I had just heard. I'm driving across the countryside in Ohio, not Oklahoma. Completely unnerved, I reached out to switch off the radio, but not before I heard the voice on Shelby's phone say, Abigail, I know. I pressed the button and the radio fell silent. But somehow, in some way, the man on the call finished his sentence anyway.
2: You're listening.
1: Startled. I looked up, instinctively focusing my gaze into the rearview mirror. There, reclining in the back seat of my car, was that… man. No, no, not a man. Not at all. Creature. Phantom. A shade, or, what was it, something I remember from that class I took? Shadow figures. Some kind of malignant force. Beings from another dimension. Or perhaps the afterlife. Entities most commonly seen only on the fringes of peripheral vision. The same nightmare I thought I'd already awoken from. Mustering all the courage I could in order to keep from driving my car headlong into a telephone pole, I kept my eyes fixed on the road, focused on the dashed white centerline to keep from fainting. "What, What do you want? I managed to choke out. I wasn't about to look back again, see that hideous white face staring back at me framed in the mirror. So when it responded, I literally lurched an inch or more up off the driver's seat.
2: My purpose here is simple. To convince you that you didn't see what you thought you saw. Venus, Miss Parrish, not portholes on a flying saucer. An aberration of moonlight, distorted by the fog, nothing more.
1: By now, I'd reached the outskirts of town, a little backwater hamlet called Rendville as plainly marked on a bright green sign at the city limit. At least now I had some idea of where I was, about 34 miles away from my home in Lancaster. About a block ahead, I caught sight of a gas station, a couple of old-style pumps and a small wooden shack. Unremarkable, but still. Open and brightly lit. A seemingly adequate place to drop off my unwanted traveling companion. As soon as the car came to a stop, I shifted into park and jumped out. Turning and then backing away several steps, I shouted, Get out! Right now! whoever or whatever you are. I want you out of my car, then I'm calling the police and telling them where they can find you and pick you up." I never heard the sound of the car door opening. Maybe, in my panicked state, I simply missed it. Nevertheless, the man was now standing outside next to a stack of tires, unmoving, that same awful smile still slashed across his face. As I looked on in fright, the man raised a shop mechanics drop light, essentially a long cord with a light bulb on the end, surrounded by a metal cage with a hook on top. It looked for all the world like he was holding up a microphone to his lips, preparing to sing, A candy-colored clown they call the Sandman. He switched on the light, illuminating his gaunt, cadaverous features, and said coldly,
2: No one will believe you, Miss Parrish. Best to simply let bygones be bygones. No saucer, no aliens, nothing out of the ordinary.
1: For the first time since I encountered him, the man seemed somehow less threatening. His shoulders were hunched over and sagging as if he'd just finished running a marathon.
2: I must go now,
1: he said slowly.
2: My energy is low. I must be... recharged.
1: Without another word, the man let go of the light and let it fall with a loud clank to the ground, then turned and awkwardly shuffled off into the darkness beyond the gas station lights and was gone. As I stood there, unmoving, terrified beyond reason, the station attendant stepped out of the shack and walked over to where I was standing.
0: Ma'am, are you okay?
1: It took me a moment to acknowledge that he was there, but finally I said, that man, did you see him? The attendant looked around the grounds and shrugged.
0: "Uh, No ma'am, didn't see him. Who was he? Someone bothering you?
1: I scoffed. You might say that. He rode here in the back seat of my car. I looked around nervously. I'm not staying. I want to put as many miles as possible between him and me. Would you do me a favor? Call your local police department and have him picked up. He's a menace. His only purpose seems to be intimidation and I don't want him frightening anyone else the way he's frightened me. Please, sir, could you do that? The attendant removed his cap and scratched his head.
0: Sure, lady. I suppose I can call Earl. That's uh, the local sheriff. Have him come on out and take a look around. Though, whoever this fella was, don't look like he's here anymore.
1: I was already back in my car and fastening my seatbelt. Just do what you can, please. With that, I stomped down hard on the accelerator, squealed the tires, and sped off down the road through town. Renville doesn't amount to much, and a moment later I was back out in rolling dark hills of absolute isolation. On the way out of town, I spotted the dark, crumbling ruins of the abandoned Renville Public School building, and the fear of threshold ratcheted back up a notch. No place I'd want to run across my persistent man in black. Heading back out into lonely territory again wasn't what I would have preferred, but further and further away from my unwanted carpooler was now my single-minded goal. The dashboard clock glowed out brightly from behind the steering wheel and clearly displayed the current time to be 11:13 pm even when i did come upon another town someplace with a more sizable population finding someplace open at this hour was going to be a bit of a challenge still it was a worthwhile question to ask my remaining companion out here in the middle of nowhere siri i blurted out What is the next town on my current route? Her reply was almost instantaneous.
4: The next town on State Route 13 is Moxahala, Ohio, approximately 4.7
6: miles from your current location.
1: Well, not much of a flight to safety, aside from the fact that my adversary is now on foot. As long as Moxahala is graced with an all-night diner, and I believe that it is, a cup of black coffee would be just what the doctor ordered Then I noticed something else that wasn't quite right. Well, maybe that's an understatement. While the clock in my car now indicated that it's 11.17 p.m., four minutes later than the last time I checked, my phone said it was 2.17 a.m., three hours later. I'm certainly not tech-savvy, but I believe that the clock on a smartphone relies on the connection to my mobile carrier for accuracy. Unlikely to be the one that's wrong. For some reason, my thoughts immediately returned to my dress. On, inside out. Oh, my dear God, I said aloud. Three hours of missing time. A semi-truck rolled up over a hill ahead with high beams on and raced toward me. My knee-jerk reaction should have been to swerve closer to the shoulder, but for some reason I just slammed on the brakes and skidded sideways across the road. The truck nearly clipped me on the way by, air horn blasting, but it didn't matter. In fact, I hardly noticed. Call it hallucination or flashback, but whatever I saw in that instant wasn't the grill of an oncoming truck. The lights had suddenly taken on a totally different persona, and for a split second, they weren't headlights at all. They were some kind of illumination embedded in the domed ceiling of a cylindrical room, shining down on what looked to me, at least in a fleeting glance, like children, short, amorphous figures that were standing to either side of me. A wave of claustrophobia snapped me back to the moment and I realized I had come to a stop across both lanes of traffic. Wasting no time, I put my car in reverse and backed over to the roadside where I left the engine idling. As frightening as the implication suggested, my memory of the situation was coming back, bits and pieces at a time. Although I still didn't understand the complete picture, several disjointed details were beginning to take shape. As much as I would like to believe that UFOs are just a big bucket of paranoid bullshit, there's no denying the reality all around me. All my notions of make-believe had just been shattered like a mirror. Now, there was no reflection that I could rely on to show me how I thought things were supposed to be. Had I been abducted? All the classic earmarks are there. With a sense of utter vulnerability welling up inside me like a tidal wave, I gunned the engine and sped off once again, though not before I happened to glance out the passenger side window. Sure enough, there he was leaning against a mile marker with his thumb extended like a hitchhiker, looking back at me with that same gruesome lipstick-painted grin, spread ear to ear. Go away! I screamed as my car lurched back on the road, careening in a dangerous string of fishtails on the damp pavement. As I regained control with my fingers clamped to the wheel like a vice, I thought to myself, How the hell did he catch up to me? The gas station in Rendville was miles behind me. Had he hitchhiked from there? Who, in their right mind, would stop to pick up a fiendish-looking creep like that? Even more alarming, was he perhaps an alien himself? Was the saucer still pursuing me even now? I cautiously looked up through the windshield for some kind of object, pacing my car, but saw nothing. Only the vast of night, a blanket of stars, shining down from the blackness of space. Of course, any logical explanation of my pursuer's identity had become far less likely. As unthinkable as it sounded, he seemed to be some freakish kind of cryptid, a paranormal being with supernatural abilities. At first, I was convinced that he was a government agent, maybe the CIA, or some sort of covert operative. That wouldn't even begin to explain his seeming ability to appear out of thin air. All of this added up to only one indisputable fact. I'm afraid, very, very afraid, of him, of this whole damn situation. I quickly made a sideward glance into the rearview mirror. Uh, oh thank God, I whispered aloud. He wasn't sitting in the back seat, like before. Finally, several miles further on, I passed a road sign announcing my arrival in Moxahala, and I felt myself start to breathe a little easier. No sooner had things started looking up, I caught sight of a dark field of headstones that was the Moxahala Cemetery. And my heart sank. Feeling even more lonely and isolated in the company of the dead, I absent mindedly switched on the radio again, wanting, no, needing the sound of another human voice. The WAIR talk radio show was still broadcasting, and for some reason, Clayton Lomax sounded unusually distressed. Apparently, he was on the phone with a caller who was right in the middle of something big that was just now unfolding.
3: Yeah, Clayton, they just buzzed me again. Two of them, way below safe altitude out here in these parts. F-22 Raptors, I think.
1: There was a silence for an instant. Then Lomax replied, Raptors,
3: are you sure? Are they in pursuit of the object?
1: The caller took a quick breath and said,
3: Yes, sir, they do appear to be, definitely, F-22s. I was, uh, in the Air Force for Enduring Freedom. Seen plenty of these birds up close and personal. Probably scrambled out of Dayton at right Pat. They're dogging the object, that's for sure.
1: I listened, glued to the show, disbelieving, suddenly aware that all of this was unfolding somewhere in my own backyard. Oh, sure, Moxahalla was more than 130 miles from Dayton, but still, it hardly seemed coincidental. All at once, a brilliant row of rotating red lights appeared over a rise in the distance, spinning like a tilted Ferris wheel, in my direction. Coincidental? No. This thing was what I had witnessed hovering out in a lonely cornfield back down the road. I pulled my car to a stop, rolled the window down, and switched off the lights but left the key turned so the radio stayed on. Sure enough, a saucer-shaped craft glided over the tops of the tassels and passed by directly overhead, heading out over the bleak cemetery grounds. There was an unusual electrostatic crackling, accompanied by a low, ominous rumble as it went by, and little by little, my hair levitated around my face with glowing wisps of electricity, dancing between the strands. The entire encounter would have been almost etheric and peaceful, had it not been for a pair of fighter jets that came screaming by seconds later. Dear God, I shouted, this is what I'm listening to on the radio. The roar of the jet engines was deafening as they crossed over the road, the afterburners, or whatever they're called, pushing down a long, sweeping swath of corn stalks as the air was displaced in their wake. By the time I could finally hear the broadcast again, I made out the caller shouting, They just crossed
4: Route 13! I
1: can't follow them out into the field anymore. As if on cue, an old Ford pickup truck came barreling down the road out of Moxahala and swerved with screeching tires to avoid colliding head on with me. Realizing I'd stopped my car in the middle of the road once again to watch the air show, I quickly turned over the engine and wasted no time heading into town. Finally, I caught sight of the Crossroads Cafe, a very welcome neon open sign displayed prominently over the front door. My car rolled to a stop in the gravel parking lot behind the building, and I wasted no time getting inside. A little bell mounted to the door announced my arrival, and a moment later, A frumpy-looking waitress dressed in a food-stained pastel pink uniform glanced over at me from behind the counter and motioned around the
6: empty room. Have a seat anywhere, honey. Don't need a reservation this time of morning. I walked across the
1: checkerboard linoleum tile to a corner booth and slid into the seat. Can I start you off with a cup of coffee, dear? She asked. Sure, I responded. Cream and sugar. Coming up, she confirmed, and then went about the business of gathering up a cup and a clean set of silverware. The ambient clinking of dishes in the sink wafted into the room, combined with the muffled audio from a small black-and-white television mounted on the wall in the corner across from where I was sitting. All along the wall next to the booth were windows running around three of the four sides of the diner, facing out to Route 13 on my left and offering a view into a dark meadow on my right, with a dense tree line beyond, in full view, as I glanced out nervously into the gloom. Feeling more than a bit exposed, I slid as close to the edge of my seat as possible, and was momentarily relieved when the waitress placed the cup of coffee on the table before me along with a bundle of silverware wrapped in a napkin and a bowl of creamer and packets of sugar. Thank you, I responded, then added Miss, may I ask you something? The waitress paused. Sure honey, what's on your mind? I was almost afraid to bring any of the crazy events in my recent experience to the cold light for discussion, but the urge to share the nightmare with someone else, anyone else occupying said nightmare, seemed cathartic at the moment. Have you seen anything unusual going on this morning? Something, I don't know, odd, out there along the road or in the sky? The waitress put a hand on her hip and looked down at me thoughtfully.
6: You see a lot of weird stuff going on out there this time of night. A little while before you came in, I saw a pickup truck almost skid off the road on that curve out there, the driver leaning way out the side window, looking up at something or another he seemed to be chasing after. Not that speeding through town is all that out of the ordinary, it's just that I I don't know. I thought I might have noticed a light. Maybe a row of lights up above the trees that he seemed to be chasing. For an instant, the pavement, the field out back, they were all lit up by whatever this thing was, everything out there glowing this odd flickering red. It was there. Then it was gone, right before that truck came barreling toward the diner. And that was it. Confirmation that all of this is real, neither comforting nor
1: alarming, just vindication of something that should not be, but seemingly was, all too real. Come to
6: think of it, the waitress added, there was something else, earlier. Just after midnight, out there on the windowsill, there was this barn owl. Didn't see it land there, It was just like, all of a sudden, it was perched on that ledge, looking in. She visibly shivered. I knew instantly that the vision she was recalling
1: must have unnerved her terribly. She drew in a long, deep breath, then
6: said, It had, oh God, it had these big, black, unnatural eyes. They were like looking into, I don't know, a mask covering over something malevolent. She cupped her hand
1: over her mouth to fight back a gasp and closed her eyes tightly.
6: I mean, it's a silly old owl, right? Nothing, really. It's just that, why was it there, looking in like that? I had to look away. Then, when I did manage to look back, it was gone. I didn't see it flying away, just gone almost as if on cue a bizarre
1: rumble started blaring from the television across the room intermixed with a modulated shrieking as the noise tapered off to background static i'm quite certain i heard the voice of the man in black whispering out of the tiny crackling speaker saying
5: venus is calling this parish
1: can you hear it as i sat there Considering the frightening implications of the transmission and the startling similarity of this woman's story to my own run-in with the mysterious shadow man, the bell on the door suddenly rang out and nearly caused me to jump off the edge of my seat. Standing there in the doorway was a young boy, dressed in blue jeans and a t-shirt with a sizable canvas sack slung over one shoulder, bearing the words "Lancaster Herald Examiner." A paper boy. Elliot, the waitress exclaimed.
6: You nearly scared us half to death.
7: Sorry, Mom. I got halfway through my route and got hungry. Can I have a short stack and a glass of milk?
1: The tension in the room momentarily dispelled. The waitress smiled
6: and replied. More free food, huh? Well, all right. You're lucky I've got at least one paying customer this morning. The kid
1: shut the door and seated himself on a stool in front of the counter, waiting as his mother went back to the kitchen to put a couple of pancakes on the grill. I managed a little smile of amusement at the brief exchange of mother-son banter and then turned to face the window. Admittedly, I became more than a little uneasy as I stared out into the dim recesses of the parking lot and the vague, indistinct meadow and tree line beyond. Slowly nursing my coffee, I thought of the owl the waitress had seen through this very window and felt the hairs on the back of my neck bristle. I've never considered any sort of connection between aliens and owls, but what she had said about the bird's appearance, that it seemed to be a shroud covering something sinister, really put the hook in me. Retrieving my phone from the still, inside-out pocket of my dress, I pressed down on the home button and said, Hey Siri, show me a picture of a barn owl. After a moment, she responded with the characteristic
4: Here's what I found.
1: followed by silently displaying several images. I immediately found myself having to fight back the urge to scream. Maybe it was a circumstance. Maybe something subliminal, I don't know. I'm certain that at some point in my life I must have happened upon a flesh-and-blood barn owl, or at the very least, the likeness of one. Why then did this little photograph on my phone invoke such a horrific response? There was no denying the resemblance. Dark, black, oversized eyes, essentially devoid of a face. Pale, grayish-white feathers? Nocturnal creatures native to that netherworld, inhabited by things that go bump in the night. I didn't see an owl on my screen. I was looking into the face of a gray alien. That's how they look, all right, said a voice I recognized as the paperboy, Elliot. Apparently interested in my series search results, The boy started looking over my shoulder when he saw that I had been visibly startled by the picture.
7: The past three nights now, I've been seeing those kinds of owls all over town. Never in the sky, though. I mean, you'd think that I'd see them up flying around, you know, in a tree at least, but nope. Always somewhere standing on the ground, almost like they can't fly, least not on their own. I saw the first one out at the Crandall farm last Monday, about the same time it is now. Just standing at the edge of the corn row, watching me like I was going to pop a wheelie on my bike or something. Another thing. Every time I see one, it's always lit up by this creepy red light. I don't know where the light comes from. That same morning. I spotted another one just standing in the middle of the road, out on Route 13 while I was chucking papers near the edge of town. It didn't try to chase me or anything. That one was weird too because the red light was there, just that it was shining on the owl from somewhere way up high, like a spotlight or a real strong flashlight beam. The next morning, I actually spotted a whole group of them standing next to the railroad tracks in the shadow of that big, empty grain elevator out there across town. Then, there was what happened a little while ago.
1: Did you see the owl your mom was telling me about? I asked. The boy looked conflicted.
7: Well, not exactly. I mean, I saw something,
1: he said, gesturing out the window.
7: Out in that field back there. Mom was sitting where you are now, and I was here. She was busy giving me grief about my last report card when I saw her look outside. She got really quiet and got this really scared look on her face.
1: She saw the owl? I asked. Elliot shook his head.
7: Well, at first I'm not so sure. I was telling her about the owls I'd seen on my route, so I think that's what she decided she saw. I couldn't understand why she'd get so freaked out about a bird. See, she didn't say it was an owl when she first spotted them. She asked me if I saw the little gray men standing in the field. Oh, God, I exclaimed. Did you see these men?
1: He was trembling now.
7: I saw the owl right there where mom said it was, looking in this window here. I saw other owls peeking out of the tall grass and— He inhaled sharply. I saw where the red light was coming from. Before the
1: boy could finish the thought, his mom pushed her way back in from the kitchen, carrying
6: two plates of pancakes and a glass pitcher of syrup. Short stack on the house, she said. Wouldn't be fair to sit and watch a relative eat for free. You really shouldn't have gone to all that trouble, I replied.
1: I'm not that hungry, and I need to be getting home. Back to Lancaster. Give the extra short stack to my friend here. He's still a growing boy and a working man. Quickly downing the last sip of coffee from my cup, I placed a $10 tip on the table, stood, and started for the exit. Thank you for your kindness and hospitality, I said. I've heard enough about owls for one day. As I grasped the knob and opened the door with a jingle, I heard the waitress call out after me. They're not owls, you know. I let the door swing shut behind me, unwilling to keep riding down the tracks on this metaphysical crazy train of thought. I just want to be someplace safe, someplace familiar. The night sky above was now cloudless and littered with shimmering stars, a vista that was both majestic and wholly unsettling all at once. Who goes there? I asked aloud, staring up into the dark depths. Feeling more than a little exposed on the way to my car, I wasted no time getting behind the wheel and getting back on the road. As I watched the diner shrinking into the distance behind me, I breathed a sigh of relief that the mystery man hadn't stopped in for an omelette. The sun would be coming up soon, and with it the welcome light of day, dispelling the gloom and pushing this entire experience into a realm that could easily be offhandedly explained away, tucked neatly into the gray matter of forgotten memory. If only it were that simple, I thought, tugging at the button on my dress that was still on, inside out. No. This was no fantasy. No fevered dream brought on by an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, or a fragment of an underdone potato. Resigned to the notion that this wasn't all just going away with the dawn, that I couldn't simply pinch myself or click my heels together three times to wake up. I switched on the radio once again to see whether or not the Clayton Lomax show was still broadcasting. It was, as it turns out, Clayton now taking calls on open lines. Any topic up for grabs.
3: West of the Rockies, you're on the air.
8: Good morning. Yeah, hello? Is this... Thin-air radio?
1: Clayton Lomax took a deep breath in, as if to convey his disdain for the obvious.
8: Indeed it is. Clayton Lomax here. Who am I speaking to? Uh, yes, Mr. Lomax. This is Mel from Spokane. How are you? I'm doing great,
3: sir. Four cups of coffee, two packs of Luckies. Mel, my friend,
8: I'm in rare form. So? What's on your mind? Well, going back to the UFO topic you touched on earlier, specifically, alien abduction and mind control. See, I've been having these, uh, well, visions lately. I mean, weird shit. I can't even begin to explain. I've been through several sessions of hypnotic regression, and, well, it turns out that I've had what folks call a close encounter. Really scary stuff, you know? Ever since, I keep seeing these... things. I mean, nothing outwardly paranormal. Just odd occurrences. Commonplace stuff that's just... out of place.
1: Lomax sounded intrigued.
8: What
3: kinds of stuff are we talking about, Mel?
1: Clayton asked. The caller was clearly agitated, almost manic as he started trying to explain.
8: Well, like just the other day, I was at the airport, you know, Spokane International. People everywhere, coming, going. Typical bustle you'd expect in an airport terminal. Lots of noise, arrivals and departures over the PA system. Then, all of a sudden, there was this Oh, God, this tone, and static, you know, like tuning a dial on an old shortwave radio. Crazy, disjointed whines and crackling static. Only, near as I can tell, no one else in the terminal could hear it. If any of them did, certainly someone would have reacted. For a moment, it was almost deafening. Then all at once came a voice, like a whisper in the noise, that simply said, Stay Uh, I, um... I recorded the whole thing on my phone. I can play it if you
1: like. Clayton was obviously surprised.
8: So, let me get this
3: straight. You're hearing and recording this sound, and yet, nobody else hears it? Or reacts to it? Damn. This is even giving me goosebumps. Yeah, sure, Mel. Play it back. All right, Clayton. Here
1: goes. A frightening cacophony of tones, noises, and chatter, intermixed with a clear whisper, played back clearly from the caller's phone, Once the recording was finished, Mel continued with his story.
8: About that same time, I looked out across the aisle near one of the airport gates, and there was this old woman, just standing there, looking back. I mean, looking straight at me. She was holding up this antique, tarnished metal-framed mirror, holding it so the glass was facing out in my direction. There was just something not right about her, the eyes cold, the face expressionless. I couldn't look away, like in a trance or something. I started walking toward her until I was close enough to look into the mirror. There was no reflection, like I wasn't there at all. I heard a final boarding call for my flight and momentarily turned away. And when I looked back, just seconds later, she was gone. Just gone.
1: Clayton clicked his tongue on the roof of his mouth.
3: Phew, that's quite a story, Mel. No idea what it might have meant, why you didn't see a reflection in the glass.
1: There was a brief silence, then the caller went on.
8: Uh, I keep thinking these odd occurrences are somehow tied to the missing time. The abduction.
1: Lomax kept pressing for more.
3: Now you're saying occurrences, plural. I'm assuming there's
8: more than just the old woman at the gate?
1: Again, a long pause of dead air, then...
8: Much more, Mr. Lomax, yes probably more than you have time to cover this morning.
1: I was driving out on a very lonely stretch of two-lane highway now, a long, dark pathway leading me back to Lancaster. I'm not gonna lie, the program was upsetting me greatly, hitting a little too close to home right now. I twisted the dial, channel surfing until I finally landed on a station, playing classic rock and my tension level ratcheted down a notch. The miles ticked off a little easier now and I found myself singing along to Nights in White Satin by the Moody Blues, the creepiness factor finally becoming background noise that was much easier to chalk up as nonsensical paranoia. lunacy brought on by Fatigue. At the end of the song, of course, I quoted the soliloquy to the last few lines. Cold-hearted orb that rules the night, removes the colors from our sight. Red is gray and yellow-white, but we decide which is right and which is an illusion. (laughs) Illusion, now there's a moving target. Seriously? ufos and the men in black get a hold of yourself abby you probably put your dress on inside out half asleep this morning a pre-coffee snafu i chuckled at the thought at all of it how ridiculous it was no more easy a's for you kid stick to what you can prove As my car rounded a bend in the road, I spotted what seemed to be some sort of construction barriers up ahead, as well as a number of olive drab military vehicles parked on the highway beyond, effectively blocking passage to where I so desperately wanted to be, home. Rather than a direct confrontation, I opted to pull off the road at a distance, turn off my headlights, and wait there were ambient noises, croaking frogs, crickets, a slight breeze blowing through the surrounding corn tassels and something else. Helicopter rotors, distant thumping of what was most likely approaching air support for whatever event was obviously unfolding on the other side of a rise beyond where the cluster of armor-clad vehicles were situated. Walking distance? With my supply of adrenaline having long since been spent, I decided that since I wasn't getting home anytime soon, I might just as well risk capture to see what the hell was going on over that hill. Scattered trees and tall, uncut weeds along the roadside provided effective camouflage as I moved forward past the flickering barricades and alongside four heavily armored Humvees and a pair of shining black Mercedes SUVs. Several MPs were standing guard by the barricades, but didn't notice the crunching twigs and leaves beneath my feet, thanks to the now thunderous roar of the helicopters directly overhead. Searchlight beams crisscrossed the road, looking, I assume, for potential threats to the roadblock. Fortunately for me, the choppers both veered off and started backtracking before they spotted my car, concealed beneath a big oak tree where I parked it effectively out of sight. Meanwhile, I pressed on until I reached the top of the rise, a vantage point from which I could plainly see the events unfolding that were being so effectively shielded from view. A long swath of corn had been flattened, the surrounding stalks on fire, burning completely out of control. There, at the end of this long smoldering gouge in the earth, and partially buried in a heaping mound of dirt, was a gleaming metallic disc with a ring of pulsating red lights lining the rim. Feeling a strange mix of vindication, amazement, and utter disbelief, I hunkered down in the tall grass and waited for what would happen next. The helicopters swooped down low over the nearest point along Route 13 to where the object had finally come to rest and landed, their spotlights trained on the exposed curve of the ship, or whatever it was. Dozens of people dressed head-to-toe in white hazmat suits were hurriedly working to snuff out the fires surrounding the object while a group of armed soldiers in black field uniforms stood With their guns drawn, the rotors on top of the idling aircraft created an eerie strobe light effect across the valley, and in that rhythmic flashing gloom, I could see that the choppers bore no markings or insignias whatsoever, just painted black, just as mysterious and as intimidating as the SUVs behind me that were guarding the roadblock. The longer I crouched there watching, the more it became apparent that this was all, essentially, what amounted to a cleanup crew, a strike team of sorts, here to erase evidence of the unthinkable. Medics, as identified by the IV bags they held dangling over their heads, stepped out from under the leading edge of the craft carrying a stretcher, upon which lay the shrouded form of a child or a very small person. An alien? Uh, oh, no, no, please, I choked out, gripping and tugging the hemline of my dress. On, inside, out. What did they do to me? I whispered sharply. All at once, a spotlight beam fell directly on me, projected out from the underbelly of the nearest helicopter. Oh, boy! God, I thought to myself, I'll be captured by these people, probably interrogated, probably imprisoned, drugged, and dissected for study. To my relief, I heard a voice over some sort of echoing PA system say,
2: It's nothing. Probably a deer or a raccoon. Maybe an owl. Pick up the pace. We've got about 15 before zero dark 30. B-team. Bring in the heavy lift.
1: The spotlight panned away from me then, back toward the trench, where soldiers with picks and shovels were now systematically covering over any evidence of trespass. The medics that were transporting the patient stopped next to one of the helicopters and pulled open the sliding side door, then hoisted the stretcher through the opening. The rotors were already lifting the black helicopter above the tree line, as the door slid shut behind them. Back down on the road, five soldiers in black uniforms emerged from somewhere inside the object, each with a black plastic body bag slung over one shoulder. Once each of them had offloaded their cargo, the second helicopter lifted, pitched forward, and rapidly disappeared into the distance. Just as the echo of the second aircraft faded into background noise, another thundering reverberation took its place, this one much, much bigger and louder than the others. Far off yet, but rapidly approaching above the rolling cornfields was the largest helicopter I have ever seen, giant thrashing rotors beating a path in this direction through the stagnant early morning air. As the aircraft drew nearer, I could see that the whole thing looked much more like a flying I-beam with a cab attached to one end than a helicopter. Whatever this flying monstrosity was, it was intended for more than just airlifting aliens. That's when I noticed a crane, a long extension of dangling cables swaying wildly to and fro in the turbulence beneath the gyrating blades. Each cable was equipped with a substantial cast-iron hook, an obvious indication that this oversized piece of military hardware was here, for just one purpose, to extract the last remaining piece of tangible proof. The entire operation didn't take long, almost as if it wasn't the first time this team had been called upon to tidy up a mess, not dissimilar. Just as soon as the helicopter was in place, hovering directly over the smashed saucer, soldiers on the ground quickly pulled the cables around it like a sling, then draped a large canvas tarpaulin over the top, effectively concealing the mystery, shrouded underneath. Not more than 30 seconds later, the giant chopper and its precious cargo were gone, as the saying goes off to Never Never Land. I stuck around in the bushes for a little while longer to watch a big chunk of pitted rock get dumped into the divot where the saucer had come to rest, a perfectly plausible substitute for the truth. Just as my friendly neighborhood, Man in Black, had suggested. Nothing more than the planet Venus after all. Yes, Mr. Farmer, That was a meteor that crashed into your field last night. I scoffed. An undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, or a fragment of an underdone potato. Firmly convinced now that my man-in-black encounter had been nothing more than a consummate performance of intimidation by some shadowy government agent, I started back for my car still mindful of the last few uniformed soldiers that were hastily tossing the construction barriers into the back of the last remaining Humvee. Pausing until they completed their tasks and finally drove away, I stumbled out of the ditch and back up on the road, looking both ways to make sure the coast was clear. Sunrise was finally pushing away the darkness, and I breathed, a sigh of relief. The ordeal, such as it was, is over. I found my car right where I left it, grateful that they didn't whisk it away to some undisclosed location alongside the UFO. I drove up the road, over the rise, and then slowed down long enough to rubberneck as I slowly rolled past the crash scene. I wondered if that big boulder they tossed in there was authentic, in a way, still extraterrestrial, though probably not destined to change the course of human history, other than becoming a subject for gossip among the local farming community. Bathed in early morning hues of yellow-orange, the rolling hills and valleys passed by without incident, and I finally found myself driving into familiar territory. Just a few short miles away from home, I pulled to a stop at a railroad crossing outside Lancaster and waited patiently for a long chain of graffiti-marked boxcars to slowly screech and clatter by. Far off in the distance, I heard the locomotive air horn sound and the calming effect of the commonplace really started sinking in. Sifting through the unread email on my phone, my attention became momentarily fixated on the mundane, swiping a sizable inbox full of uninteresting messages to the trash. Without even looking up from the screen, I absentmindedly reached out and switched on the radio, more than ready for some local news or a friendly weather report. That wasn't what was broadcasting. Flooding into the compartment of my car like a wailing banshee, was the very same deja vu signal like the one recorded and played back on the Clayton Lomax show. Crackling static, high-pitched whines and beneath it all, the unmistakable whisper of someone saying, My phone fell from my hand and clattered loudly against the dashboard console. Almost simultaneously, I looked up to see the last boxcar roll past the crossing and there, in its wake, standing motionless on the other side of the track, was the hideous form of Maveth Vale, the man in black all of my concerted efforts to push away the unbelievable came crashing down like shattered shards of glass at my feet as the ghoulish entity started walking stiffly across the tracks in my direction that same lipstick painted grimace still slashed across his face like a bloody knife wound no no i shouted you you can't be real please stay away ignoring my plea Vale stepped up to the passenger side door, pulled it open, and sat down next to me. I swear, the temperature inside the car dropped 10 degrees as he pulled the door shut behind him and mechanically fastened his seatbelt.
2: Drive, Miss Parrish.
1: Fighting back the urge to leap from the driver's seat and run, I did what he asked putting the car in drive and accelerating over the railroad crossing and down the two-mile stretch into the outskirts of Lancaster, all the while dreading the possibility that my unwanted passenger was intending to ride with me all the way home. Deciding to take charge of the conversation, I blurted out, I know what I saw. And you know, your creepy little grey friends need a lesson in putting clothes back on their lab rats. No matter what I could have dismissed as the planet Venus last night, no amount of hypnotic suggestion will convince me that nothing happened. This, I held up one of the buttons of my dress that was turned awkwardly inward against my collarbone, is not a case of mistaken identity. This, I said tugging at my dress, is proof. Proof, Vale retorted in that same eerie sing-song voice.
2: Proof of what, Miss Parrish? The truth?
1: I couldn't look over at him for fear of fainting dead away. With my eyes razor focused on the road ahead, I confirmed. Yes, of course, the truth. Vale emitted a low, gurgling chuckle.
2: Pop, 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 pop.
1: Then replied,
2: You were there. The truth is no longer attainable. It was whisked away by helicopter. No matter what you believe happened to you tonight, the analogy persists. You saw something. Why not Venus? Or, if it comforts you, an owl.
1: Again, a long, low, unnatural chuckle.
2: <laughs> People yourself included shrink away from the truth because they cannot face it reality itself is malleable and your kind choose to bend it to fit their own narrow view of what is real just a bad dream isn't that it miss Parrish? human beings believe in that which they cannot see through the notion of faith yet alien visitation is nervously laughed away and off-handedly debunked should you be inclined to share your supposed encounter with someone anyone they will most likely recommend medication to suppress hallucination yet believe that an apple robbed humanity of paradise or that a big boat saved two of everything from extinction. A boat just as elusive as those glowing red portholes you thought you saw. Truth. Lies. Both. Very hard to prove. Your garment on inside out is fleeting. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, you'll put on a different dress and your proof will no longer exist wiped away like fingerprints on a mirror the reflection ridiculous in the light of day when nightmares are cast aside as flotsam
1: up ahead i caught sight of a car parked on the side of the road with its hazard lights flashing an old black sedan with windows tinted dark as pitch
2: ah here we are pull over you can let me off here
1: Vail said. As soon as I rolled my car to a stop behind the black sedan, he unbuckled the seatbelt and opened the door to step out. So that's it then? No closure. No answers. I'm just supposed to go on pretending from this day forward that I wasn't... abducted? Vail turned mechanically and looked back in at me, his clown face smile fading as if he was once again running low on energy.
2: What would you have me say, Miss Parrish?
1: I heard the sound of a car door opening, followed by an odd hiss of what sounded like escaping air. Looking out through the windshield, I saw that two more identically dressed men in black were now standing, unmoving, directly in front of my car. Alarmingly, Both men didn't just resemble Vale. They were the spitting image of him, like clones, doppelgangers, shades of something unexplainable.
2: I really must be getting back now,
1: Vale said dryly.
2: You won't be seeing me again. There is no need. The truth, the lies, all of it, swept beneath a rug woven by the liars themselves. I'd like to say that I'm sorry if I frightened you, but then, that is my job, after all."
1: With that, he stepped clear of the car door and slammed it shut with what seemed to be a tremendous effort. He then joined his two identical counterparts, all three of them coldly staring back at me through the dashboard glass. Vale slowly, mechanically, lifted his arm and waved farewell. Then, one by one, each man walked slowly, methodically, back to the sedan and disappeared into the inky blackness inside. I half expected the gleaming antique automobile to silently lift into the air and fly away into the sky. I was almost disappointed when all that happened was that the car started turned around and slowly drove back in the direction from where i had come a moment later the tail lights vanished behind a stand of tall trees and i finally breathed a sigh of relief no answers no one to pose the questions to as much as it was a relief i felt as though this night will most likely haunt me for the rest of my life i felt compelled to call clayton lomax To relate my story, share it, at least, with other like-minded earthlings who have had similar experiences. But not now. Now, I just want to go home and change my dress.
0: I saw a disc up in the air. A silver disc that... Wasn't there. Two more weren't there again today. Oh, how I wish they'd go away. Graffiti on a laboratory wall at White Sands Missile Range. No doubt wiped clean or painted over hastily after it was written. That's the standard protocol, isn't it? With all aspects of the UFO phenomenon for reasons of national security. Project Blue Book was closed a long time ago. Whatever secrets left behind are not seemingly written in its pages, unless, of course, we could somehow read between the lines. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Miss Abigail Parrish would most likely agree with Mr. Shakespeare, though sadly, there has long since been a system in place to effectively hold said things at bay, pushing them back into the ether, the unseen nether region of thin air.
3: Episode
0: 17 of the thin air podcast anthology shades of gray was written produced directed narrated and told by r.j lonsdale the voices of abigail parish maveth vale clayton lomax callers to thin air radio the diner waitress and her son elliot were performed by yours truly r.j lonsdale and the voices of the service station attendant and the UFO cleanup crew commander were performed by Wild Bill TikTok. Audio production for this thin air episode by R.J. Lonsdale of Flyby Studios. Music compositions used in this episode include The Wish and Dark Whisper by COAG Music, Bent and Broken by Kevin McLeod. Dark Tension by Power Music Factory, Don't Feed My Horse, Flaming Star, Rocky Mountains, Homesick, and Almost Heaven by Free Sound Music, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. This has been an R.J. Lonsdale Flyby Studios presentation.